0: So um, we're we're back into our rhythm, Ronnie, and it's it's funny. It's it's a new year, and so there's all this newness, and we have a new guest, and we're going to talk about new things and all that kind of stuff. And it's so interesting, just like at the start of the year, to really take and pause for a second and think about um, the the new things to do. Um, I don't know how much time do you spend thinking about that as you go into a new year. I used to spend a
1: lot more time. I would actually set a resolution and try and stick to it. But then, you know, like everyone mid February rolls around and that resolution kind of went out of, out the window. So I have stopped trying to do that. Uh, so I do kind of think of like, you know, what's, what's some new things I could focus on this year, both in work or in personal life. Uh, but no hard resolutions. What about
0: you? Yeah, I'm. I'm not a resolution guy. I'm a word guy. Uh, I like to think about words that to focus on as I get into a new year, and uh, and that that actually shaped the uh, the 2023 20 blog that that uh, we put up that I helped put together. So, yeah, it's interesting. So we'll we'll have to chat with our our guest uh, about about his take. So welcome to Group Thinkers. Uh, I'm your host Justin McCord. With me, as always, is Ronnie Richard. And um, we're excited about the newness of today and the conversation that we're going to have. So, um, Group Thinkers, the podcast from RKD Group, on each episode, we have someone from the nonprofit space who can bring uh, a unique perspective, help shine a light on something in a different way so that we're constantly challenging ourselves and being curious about how we connect uh, people and nonprofits. And so, as we get into this year, this is really a new season for for us on group thinkers, where our focus is on leadership. And our goal for you, our listening audience, is for you to hear from people and to learn from their experiences and uh, and understand how they think about leadership. As we look into the market, there is still clouds of uncertainty. And so we believe that doing the work for yourself on being a better leader is a a, a great way to help walk through that uncertainty. So, with that preamble, uh, I want to welcome our guest, the new CEO of RKD Group, Mr. Chris
2: Pritchard. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for me. Appreciate the opportunity to join you guys today,
0: Chris. What uh, what what's your take on like resolutions and New Year and words and what, how do you approach that? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I am kind of somewhere in
2: between you guys. I, am a little bit of a resolution person, but I'm also very cognizant of the fact that it can't be, uh, I didn't work out at all last year now I'm working out six hours a day, every day. Right. So, uh, we've also uh, started doing a little bit of it with our kids, right? Cause we wanted to get them thinking about self-improvement and those types of things that are relatively young. And so. know some of those things are 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 kind of funny as resolutions i should probably keep them for the future uh but but i do have a little bit of that but i think it's i am somewhere in between justin where it's a little bit more high level or general right so for example as a family we came up with a resolution that said we want to have be more efficient we want to have like less material stuff like we just we've gotten overwhelmed with it, right and it's not like a specific target as much as it is, we want to like, you know, be less impactful, uh, and less consumer oriented and just getting the red, like with the young kids, you end up getting a lot of stuff that goes to a landfill real fast. And so we just wanted to do that less, but that's kind of a little more generalized than it is like something really specific. Like I'm going to exercise more.
0: Right. Right. No, but it's, it's I think it's good. I mean, like, it's funny that, uh, many times we wait until, you know, January to, to do those things. Uh, versus, yeah, the constant work of reflection and, and application. So, um, so uh, on uh, on a normal episode, we kind of walk through, and we start by, uh, you know, talking with our guests about someone's path. And and honestly, Chris, today is all about your path, and uh, and and your path to um, your new role as CEO of Arcady Group, but. Um, really, just the the things that you've learned along the way, and how those things shape who you are coming into this role. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, I, I want you to I want you to go back and start at the beginning. And uh, and I know that you are a uh, a military kid, uh, and yeah. so I, I want you to share a little bit of of that aspect of your upbringing, and maybe some of the things that even shaped you from that time. <sighs> Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there's a couple things that I think go along with
2: being a military kid, at least that went along with me being a really military kid. There's one aspect that's really around just the way your life works. And then there's the other aspect around the people that you see as role models and the people that you get to engage with every day. So the, the, the first one around the way your life works is most military kids uh, move around a lot right? You don't have the opportunity to, some do, right? But you don't have the opportunity to spend your formative years in one environment and one location. Uh, I think before I turned 18, I lived in 10 or 11 different places, um, depending upon, um, and, uh, and went through a couple of strings where I moved every year for four or five years in a row. And so I think one of the things that teaches you as a kid is, to, well, I took two things away from it. First is you had to learn to be able to engage with new people, new groups, new social dynamics really quickly, right? Or you were, if you are uh, not good at that, you kind of go into your own shell. But for myself, I, I was a little more outgoing. I was a little more able to kind of learn from that. I was a big nerd, but at least I was able to learn from uh, how to engage and, and how to do that And then i also think it allows you to honestly feel like you can refresh yourself and and improve right i think sometimes if you grow up in the same place for 18 years you develop your role and personality and reputation and like kindergarten right and you were the like crack of kid in kindergarten so you're expected to be funny forever or you were the studious kid in kindergarten and you're expected to be studious your whole life and so in some ways it also allows you to say you can constantly improve because nobody knows you when you're walking in the door here, right? And so be your be yourself, but also I remember at a pretty young age reflecting and saying, "Kind of, is there anything I want to do differently?" So that was one piece. So it allows me as an adult and as a leader to feel pretty comfortable in most rooms, right? Uh, feel pretty comfortable and getting used to understanding the uh, culture in the room and the sort of reacting on uh, to that as well, and to be really observant of other other people because you had to learn that quickly at a young age the second piece i think is the idea of most of the adults that you're engaging with in particular when you live say on a base right um which i did a few times and part of it is at growing up i didn't even have when i was younger a concept of a job outside the military other than maybe doctor teacher right it was just sort of all moms and dads were in the military. It's
0: all connected okay. in that space. Like yeah. that's your that's your bubble.
2: That's just your that's your just your room. And and I think what's interesting with that when you think about it that way, you also saw a lot of people who were had had made the decision to dedicate their lives to service. Right. a, a different type of service than say a nonprofit mission, obviously, but these are people who not only dedicate their lives to service but are also willing to put their lives on the line to protect ideals they believe in. And I think it's really interesting Uh, to sort of grow up as a kid in that environment where you say, you know, all of those adults have brought a sense of responsibility to their career choice, to their jobs, to their sort of lives. Uh, And the families themselves also commit to that. You move around, you you live in very different places that aren't of your choice because you're sort of committing as a group. So I think it also instills a sense of responsibility and accountability in a lot of Uh, kids as long as they embrace it some you know sometimes that's hard uh but for myself personally i think that that also um always set up
1: my uh desire to look for a larger meaning in the work that i'm doing chris did you see yourself going into the military yeah i think pretty early on like does that yeah i I, I, I sort of did right uh it, it, it i i
2: just assumed that i would i guess would be the way to say that ronnie um until i got a little older uh some realities Hit me on that front that I wouldn't necessarily be well suited from that um, from a, a couple of physical reasons, um, but from my perspective, that's kind of what I just assumed I would do because that's just what every grown up I knew did, right? Um, and so why why not? It took until really probably high school that I started thinking beyond the idea of that and and sort of beyond the idea of that the obvious career path of every grown up you run into.
0: So so then you end up uh, heading to UVA and uh, and so uh from UVA uh into the commercial marketing space uh, really with capital One uh, yeah. what what drew you to uh to capital One as you were coming out of school what were you thinking about what were you interested in uh yeah so it, it's interesting I'd love to tell you a story that I grew up as a little
2: boy wanting to be in marketing and uh thinking about how I would drive marketing and analytics. Uh, the real answer to that story is I was a system engineering major at UVA. About two or three years into being in the engineering school, I realized I did not want to be an engineer. Um, but the system engineering really was training people to be consultants uh, is the way to think about it. They, they did a lot of work on that or to work, like I did my uh, practicum at Lachi Martin, those kinds of places. Uh, I would have been happy to go into that as a senior in college, uh, I also, but I graduated at a time that was that economic bubble, and then uh, all of those consultant jobs went away. And so I essentially started having to look around and say, well, what else would I like to do? And the skills that you ha- that I developed there, or at least I think I developed there, was the idea of sort of like analytic problem solving. And, and Capital One, uh, along with others, was, is and was extremely great at that, right? They, they, especially at the time, really unlocked the credit card industry by saying, we are going to be better at, better at predicting people's financial behavior than the FICO score is, than the general market is. Um, I would, again, I was attracted to that. To be honest, I was attracted to the fact that uh, they gave a college kid a signing bonus And that it was the closest job that I got to my now wife, who was going, who was my girlfriend at the time and having, and getting her five year master's. So I would like to say that I had this really strategic approach to it. The reality is they, I I was no longer broke because they were willing to give me money while I was a senior in high school. And my wife was going to be about 50 minutes away instead of three hours away, which was the next closest job. So so I think those were really the primary decision <laughs> factors. And then it sounded like a pretty cool job anyways. But, but honestly, I got hired there as analyst. I did not know I was going to be in the marketing group. I just knew that I was going to be an analyst and that sounded pretty good.
0: Ronnie, did you uh did you get a signing bonus whenever you went into the uh the newspaper? You might be shocked by this, but no, I did oh, later. Yeah. yeah <laughs>
1: it's talking, right? But it's fascinating because I also started in engineering in college and about two years in decided that wasn't for me either. I took the journalism path, but I was well, in Sydney no. I stuck it out, Ronnie, because I figured I'd already gotten through so many calculus classes
2: that it wasn't worth like backtracking on that. I'm like, I made yeah, it through I did the <laughs> Yeah. I, like I made it through the slog. I might as well finish the climb of the hill. Um, yeah, no, my,
0: my wife was a teacher. She didn't get the second, but she, she's, uh, she's a little bit. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, w- I started in broadcast and found my way into, you know, communications and marketing. Uh, the uh, I guess the equivalent of the signing bonus whenever you go into minor league baseball, which is where I started my career, was that, you know, we had access to hot dogs on game days. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. A, there's a bit of it. Mean, oh, I, I
2: don't want you picturing some, like, you know, Wall Street uh, hero uh, <laughs> bonus here. We're, we're talking, it was attracted to a college student, which means I get to... Uh, you know, like you said,
1: uh, eat better than hot dogs once a week. Uh, that's about, the- about nine. Five old, like certain yeah. minimum threshold. So, you know, there was all the pizza on election night in the oh, oh, nose. Oh, that's,
0: that's perfect. Right. Exactly. Uh, you, I've heard you say that, at, you know, the capital one though, it, it exposed you to direct marketing in a way that you were not familiar with.
2: Yeah, no. And I, I didn't walk in being familiar with the idea of even direct marketing. I mean, obviously, I was exposed to it as a consumer, as a person. But, but to me, uh, what I found really interesting about it, and that's what kind of got me excited about marketing in general, was the idea of the, just the measurability. Like, I, ha- I can have an idea, I can run a test, and I can tell yes or no in hard terms, was this better or worse? And, I, and that kind of appealed to I guess my engineering nature of it, uh, but that just sort of appealed to my nature of it to say I, I want to know if my idea is working. I want to know if our team's thinking is working. And so it, it and it's a very measurable form. And again, Capital One, especially at the time that I was there, but still today, but especially the time that I was there, it was very much on the forefront of using analytics and direct marketing to drive business value. Right, and so while I wasn't the sort of place where I wanted to be in the long run as it relates to the industry, et cetera, it was very much uh, uh, like a great training ground for a few years of learning the space, learning how to do it. I mean, we, I sort of joke about it, but I mean, by the time I left there, I was accountable for their choice, the package choice and direct marketing for 5 billion pieces a year, right? And so that talk about like an early training ground, right? Uh, We were sending weekly mailings of tens of millions of, and that's just mine, the section that I was accountable for. And so there was a
1: lot of opportunity to test and learn, understand how all the statistics behind direct marketing work. So from there, Chris, you make your way over to Royal and Company. Tell us a little bit about like the switch to that and then... Also, like, I mean, you, you kind of moved up pretty quickly there. Um, you know, it would love to hear about like what inspired you, what, you know, who, who yeah. kind of helped you out along the way and what you learned. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, um, well, so the switch to Royal company, uh, Royal
2: company is now part of something called EAB, but, but mostly still exists and it's, and it's that former capacity, um, and they are focused in direct marketing on higher education, right? And so that was what was really interesting to me is saying, okay, I like the direct marketing component. I wasn't loving the financial services component as the main focus. And so the idea of huh they do direct marketing in higher ed. That was a surprising to me that that was a, a business, a thing. Um, but B, uh, it just was appealing to say, I can take these skills and put them towards helping institutions of higher ed. Um, when I got there. I really timed it at at a really good spot. So they were great at the direct marketing side of creative and storytelling, et cetera. They were burgeoning into the direct marketing side of analytics. And so I would say at the time that I got there, their definition of analytics was reporting. Right. And from my perspective, I had the opportunity to see what Capital One had done to learn those types of approaches and to say, oh, well, we can apply that here, we can apply uh, discipline testing, we can apply uh, predictive modeling, et cetera. Uh, also for me, one of the pieces that really helped me out early in my career was they were in the need of someone who could do the analysis and explain it to clients and explain the insights to clients. And We had some really talented people there, some great people that I'm still in touch with there. but. Uh, that wasn't something they had been asked to do before, or that wasn't something that they saw as like as much of their skill set. And so, for me, I was good at that. I was good at telling stories. I was good at understanding um, what uh, components of the analysis to bring out. And so, I had the opportunity very early to not only uh, cover the clients that I was accountable for, but I got pulled into new business. And so, I was flying around the country with. Bill Royal, who was the founder, president, CEO of the agency at a very early age in my career. And I was his analyst person on all new business pitches. And the way that he described it, I asked him one day, like, you've got me, your chief strategy, you got you, your chief strategy officer, head of new business and me. And not only did they have lofty titles, there was about 30 year experience difference between me and any of them uh, or 20 year experience difference between me and any of them. And I asked him one day, why do you bring me? And he said, you know, a lot of the clients just need to hear from me, innovation and ideas, and how we will care about them. But about a third of them need to see the proof. And I'm here, you are here to show them the proof. Not always. There'll be some days where you're just kind of sitting quietly in your suit and we don't need you. But there's other days where, I uh, where they need your type of thinking, and and he was honest with himself and said that's not that's not where I come from, right? That's not how I think. Um, it was also really hard to do those new business pitches with Bill because he was the most intuitive communicator that I've ever been around, and I've been around a lot of great people who communicate in a room. He could tell within five or ten minutes if a prospect, if the person he was talking to, if the client needed to see the numbers or needed to hear his story. And he would completely switch the meeting in the middle of the discussion. We had times where we built beautiful presentations or we thought they were 50 pages of great details and we never opened the laptop. We'd have other times where Bill, we think Bill's leading the meeting and he would turn to me in five minutes and say, and Chris is going to take you to the rest of this. And you're like, okay. <laughs> so you had to learn to like pivot off of that. And it wasn't because he was being you know, wild or harsh, he just got a feel. And he was really good at that feel. He served off in uh, the political arena. He was a chief of staff for Virginia governor. And so he just had a really good feel for what people mm-hmm. needed to hear from a communication style and, and really how they wanted to be engaged. And so I learned a lot from observing him. I am not at his level uh, but at that still to this day, but it was great to see and observe someone who was so good at understanding
0: uh, and understanding how people needed to communicate. You also, in that time, as you you talk about your um, your ascent through the company and the growth of the company in general, uh, you became um on the forefront of talking to the many different clients, right, in terms of their size and uh, and so, you know, um thinking about what you shared relative to growing up on a base and that walking into yeah. different environments and trying to make yourself immediately comfortable. I have to think that there's some application from that that led into walking into various boardrooms and dealing with people on the uh the leadership teams of higher ed that started yeah. to connect together some of your experience uh into yeah absolutely your career stop. I, I agree. And, and I think, you know, especially when
2: you're talking about the types of organizations, we had a wide variety, but look, student enrollment was top of the priority list for almost every university, college, thing you can think of. And so we were often walking into the room to talk to not only the VP of enrollment management, but oftentimes their president, potentially board members. Right. And so again, you're, I got a lot of exposure to, um, people who were executive leaders in that space, you know, presidents of large universities, of small colleges. And it was really interesting to see the diversity of that group, right? You, it's not just kind of one mold fits them all, which makes sense, right? And 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 you can see their passion for the institution. And I think that's something that I took into it as well as to say, I would get excited to do great work for them and to understand where they're coming from because each and we all went to different college universities. You say each individual college university has its own personality and its own kind of unique place in the world. And we all think of the, you know, top 50 kind of schools when you start thinking about college universities. But for me, I was always excited about the institutions that we could make real change at where people were passionate about it um, and, and really kind of engage. And, and again, I met some really amazing leaders along, along the way. And every institution had its own culture. And so, like to your point, kind of figuring out what that was and being able to see how you could fit nicely into how they think and, and how they make decisions just helped me from my career perspective. Um, and, and Ronnie, you also said too, some of the, uh, looking at my uh, time there, sort of rapid ascent, I guess, but but also I would say I had a lot of different types of jobs there. So I started off in analytics and was able to do that. But uh, I had I learned a great leadership lesson there where our uh, managing director brought me into the room and asked me, I was uh, head of analytics, essentially we called a director of analytics. I was on our equivalent of the executive committee, but we had a team who needed a new leader. Uh, and technically it would be a step down to take the job. Uh, now I ended up adding it to my, what I was doing. It wasn't just a, or it was a yes and. I guess I should have listened better, but it was, you know, and I think a lot of times you're sometimes faced and I've been faced multiple times in my career with choices to take lateral moves or even things that are slight steps down and I've taken them. And I think people oftentimes think a little too linearly in their career progression. I've tried to think about it more in two questions in the sense of how can I best help the organization that I'm working with? And then two, what's an opportunity for me to learn something? right? So I was in analytics. I was in tons and tons of client meetings, hundreds of client meetings, but I was not accountable for leadership of specific clients. I was in, out, consultant, here's what you see, here's what you got, I'll see you next year, right? And the opportunity to lead one of our client teams uh, was really the chance to say, okay, great, you can do that well, but here's 35 clients who you are accountable for their success day in and day out. And I thought that that would be really valuable to me if I was going to stay in the sort of agency, sort of partnership marketing kind of world. And uh, I decided to take it even though it wasn't technically a, a, a step up. In fact, arguably it was a step backwards um, or an addition that was not sort of cumulative. And so th- I thought that was, I would—I didn't do it on purpose all that well. I was pretty hung, uh, but I would go back and say that was a good decision. It's something I picked up on after reflecting just and to say, I should do that again. I should be open to that again in order to gain skill sets versus just look at hierarchical steps up.
0: That's a trend that certainly continued uh, as you left Royal and and went to Merkel that um, essentially what I've heard you say is that, you know, it's a little bit of this driving curiosity of that seems interesting and seems like an area where I can bring value, even if it's not linear. And so is that an accurate statement of your your on yeah, I mean, I, I mean Merkle's,
2: I, I I um I uh, remain the only person to ever transition from analytics to creative. Um, I went to Merkle. Uh, I went to Mergle ju- Justin, to to sort of one of the challenges that, uh, I, I, I that I felt like from my personal development perspective, uh by being at Royal for so long, wasn't anything about Royal, they were very great. Uh, it was more, it was so focused on uh, higher ed that I was missing some of the uh, trends that we saw from other industries. And so Merkle he, he w- is and was like a, a, a thought leader in commercial marketing, right? I mean, very cutting edge, very data and analytics oriented uh, and very digital oriented at the time still is. And so I saw an opportunity there. I had, I had friends there. I saw an opportunity there to say, let me go learn uh, this new space. Let me go see what commercial our leading commercial uh, folks are doing. And so I had the chance to go there and actually lead their nonprofit analytics group. But then very quickly over time, I started to have the opportunity to engage with different types of clients. And so after the first couple of years there, I had to make a decision where am I an analyst here and an analytics leader here? or am I a broader kind of marketing leader? And from my perspective, I had kind of made that decision earlier in my career that I'm not exclusively an analytics leader. So I made the decision, I mean, I, ha- I was leading a team of, I don't know, uh, 80-ish people, and I made the decision to move over to creative with zero direct reports. Right, like okay. So most people would say in an organization, that's a real bad idea um, <laughs> yeah. to say, I lead yeah. I lead this size and I have this much revenue accountability and I'm going to go start a new thing that's, that has zero. But for me, it was a great opportunity. It was, but honestly, Justin, one of the other things I've learned over time, and I'm sure all of us have run into that is you also have to really have a trust in the person that you're working yeah. with, right? In particular, your manager, right? Or the leader of your organization. And in this case, the move to creative, I I really enjoyed the uh, leader I was working for in analytics. We were friends. She and I are still friends. But I also really trusted the leader of creative. If it would have just been the opportunity presented to me on paper, I probably never would have gone for it. As opposed to he would coming to me and saying, I need your help. We can do great things. Come help. Mm-hmm. Right, And there was a trust there as well. And I think that that's important. When you're making, when anyone's making career decisions, is to say, can I ha- build that trust, and can I have, can I get into positions where even if I'm not quite sure how it adjusts my career, I trust that person that I'm working with, and I think that they have my best interest in mind, um, and I, and that's really what it was. And so I got to do some really interesting things. Uh, we decided to bring analytics to creative versus the other way around and really started improving the way that Merkle was doing creative through bringing strategy and analytics into it. I thought that it was just an interesting challenge, right? To say, I, I think we can do that. And, uh, and then I got involved in a lot of our storytelling, a lot of our business pitches, all of those types of things. But, but again, I think it was a recurring theme, like you said, Justin, to say, you know, that arguably would have been a step back in responsibility. It was at best a parallel move but then ultimately it offered up the opportunity for me to develop and understand and learn, kind of build something new, which was really interesting. And we had a, uh, we were able to build and develop a great
1: team there. Um, and so it was just a really fun kind of couple of years. Chris, you mentioned that manager that you trusted really helped you make that move because that is a, that is a big shift, um, uh, from, from more of, you know, the analytics to the creative side did, did. Do you feel like that manager was like a really strong mentor for you and were there other mentors for you along the way? Tell us a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah, I would say there's been a couple of
2: really strong mentors for me along the way. Um, One, I'm not sure he would have called me as a mentee, but like I mentioned earlier, Bill Royal, it was more that I'm observing someone who is, and he he would talk to me, I'm not saying that, but observing someone who is so kind of talented at what he's doing, understanding, uh, build, I mean, he built a business of that ultimately when he retired from it was 300 people from his his garage, he used to joke that it was called Royal and Company because the and company just made it sound more legit. It was really just him like working out of his house, right? (laughs) So, I mean, and there's stories where he had his car repossessed in the parking lot of the company, right? I mean, he was all in on this and so it was really interesting. Work with someone like that, but then also there, I had another mentor. Uh, his name's Larry Kirk. He uh, was a hardcore direct marketing expert, right? He used to. He's done fundraising. He had done student stuff. He had done political campaigns, and he was a writer and an analyst at the same time, which I thought was really interesting. So he could write copy. He could write you a, the best fundraising letter you could think of. While also analyzing and coming up with like numeric structures, I'm not sure if he could run a spreadsheet himself, but he could like read the data that maybe he'd print it out on the wall, right? And like read the data well. And so he both believed in me, which was really important, but also, even though there was a large experience gap there, he was very, very open to listening to my feedback. He was very open to recognizing that where I had come from was more advanced than Royal was from an analytic perspective and allowing us to like move forward it would have been very easy for him to be dismissive of me right and so i thought it was really interesting and, and to me it also taught me the the value of like open communication to say i need to be willing to listen to not only folks who have similar experience or might be a direct reporter or a leader to me but even the most like early career person because everyone is coming with a unique perspective and smart ideas can come from anywhere right and i think a lot of times in organizations, we hesitate to communicate up or to give feedback up or to disagree with someone who, um, and, and I don't, and most leaders I don't think want that, but they, they you have to actively as a leader uh, portray that openness and trust and portray that willingness to listen and portray that like openness to new ideas. Or people will assume it's kind of scary to bring up a change or to bring up feedback. Um, so he was another one. And then you mentioned that, yeah, the the individual on the creative side, he was already a mentor to me. Um, he was great. He reached out to me after, actually after we lost a pitch, um, but they had asked me, uh, I was at a client meeting and they had a new business opportunity the next day and the presentation was a mess. And so the head of that business and this person who was the head of creative asked me to stay and help them fix it. Because I had heard I was good at that. And so we stayed up all night. It was a heck of a lot better from where it started to the end. Ultimately, we lost. I mean, I had it was one of those great like, business stories where I had to go to the mall and buy clothes because I had just met with a client the day before. And I didn't even pack a bag because it was day in and day out. And so I had to like, I'm like, I can't show up wearing the same thing. So I had to like go and find something off the rack that I could put on and like steam in the shower, so it didn't smell like I had just bought it out of a store, right? All those things. Um, but anyways, he reached out to me afterwards and said, "Hey, look, that you, I love the way you approached that. I love the way you brought folks on. And if you need anything from me, let's stay in touch." So we had quarterly conversations. He was a good sounding board, and I've encouraged most people. I've, I've always taken the approach. Although now I got to think about who this would be. I've got to take the approach of finding someone to be a mentor who is not in my chain of command, right? Who has no skin in my game, other than caring about me. They don't care. They yeah, because your manager can. Al- a good manager should always be a good mentor. I'm not saying that, but it's the idea of I need someone who's a neutral party to say, I'm trying to make a decision. You have no skin in the game. You was a good thinker. What, do you th- what, what would you do? Or or what's your feedback on the way I'm thinking about it? And so I really used him as that. And then, like a year later, he calls me and says, Hey, actually, I'm thinking of starting this new thing. Why don't you come join the team? Um, and so uh, that he was someone that was like, that was a really strong mentor to me as well. I would also say one of the other uh, people that I would think about as being not really a mentor, but sort of a, like a leadership person that I would hold up is actually. Um, former CEO of Merkle, his name's Craig Dempster. And he it was more observing, he became the new CEO of Merkle, taking over from the founder David Williams, about two months before COVID hit, right? And seeing like what like a crazy leadership challenge. And seeing what he did, observing, and not again, did, did he make all perfect decisions? No, he would tell you he didn't. But he was so open with his communications, right? He was so open. He had weekly conversations. He knew people were hurting. He got on the like got bring brought people uh to conversations. And even when we had to um takes we had to reduce costs because it wasn't a very good couple of years for agencies. He had the choice between what a lot of agencies do, which is laying off or asking people to take a pay cut. And he brought it to the team and he said, look, I'm gonna ask the team to take a pay cut. I'm gonna make those senior leaders take more of a pay cut, but this saves us 476 jobs or some number, I'm making that up, but like a lot. And so for me, we had some of the best retention we've ever had during a time where we asked people to take a pay cut and they had to work at home, right? And I think what was, it It comes from his leadership. He was just very open. And, and for one thing, it's easy to be like, shake your fist and be like, mm, maybe take a 10% hand pay cut. It's very different to say, I took a 10% pay cut so I could save jobs. Like, that's, that's good, right? Like, I feel okay about that. I don't want to do that in perpetuity. And he made good by it where when we had a decent year or better than we, less bad than we anticipated, he gave people. Money back and all those kinds of things. So he may do it by it, but I I just thought it was a really great example of a a terrible terrible time to take over as a new leader, and B just being open and transparent about I don't really know what to do. We have to make really hard decisions, and here's how we're going to make them. And ultimately, Craig actually ended up stepping back from the CEO job after a while because I you know I think it just it was just a really really hard couple of years to be a new leader and it was almost like it, he put everything he had into it and it kind of drained him and so he you know he handed off uh to another fairly strong leader but i, I just thought it was like i it was mm. almost like a textbook there should you know not just for craig but for a lot of leaders it should be something that shows up in nba programs here soon because it's just you know such a unique situation that i'm not sure anyone's ever faced and so it was great uh, observing the reactions.
0: It's it's fascinating, you know, coming into this conversation and thinking about, you know, all the just wanting to understand more your your path and those sorts of things. But um, the a, a major observation is uh, how what you have observed throughout your career has has impacted you. And now you're at the end of your first week as a new leader. And so, you know, just because as we kind of land the plane and yeah. um, just how are you feeling? Like, what are, how, how are you feeling at the end of at the end of week one and uh, as you're stepping into a new role? You know, what was really interesting to me and, and to your point,
2: Justin, you you got to experience it firsthand. It, it was really a big change for me in the sense of most of the times I start a new job. I get a computer maybe on day one, maybe on day four. I go through a bunch of HR videos, learn how to log in, find where the you know um, you know all the folders are, and then my new job here, my first day is talking to 500 of our team members, <laughs> talking to clients. I mean, interviewed, all those things. I was like, wow, that's that's unique. Um, normally, nobody cares that I've started a new job. Uh, so that was one piece that's been interesting. But I, I think from my perspective. What I get really excited about, and, and the, as, I, as you and I have talked about, the, the reason that I thought RKD was the right step for me and, and that I thought I could help RKD and your our clients be successful is I found that throughout the years, I want to have a bigger mission when I'm working on something, right? I can get excited about the problem-solving aspect of any problem in any market. But ultimately, fundamentally, I need the mission side of it in order to feel, um, in order to maintain that passion and maintain the kind of desire to continue to make it better over time. And that's part of the piece that I I'm already really excited about. I can see the passion of our team members, of the clients that we have the honor of partnering with, of saying doing good in the world is is helpful and it, and it is really sort of a core part of it. Where where I also get excited is the idea of, I feel like my time at Merkle and seeing what some of the leading commercial entities in the world are doing on the cutting edge of data, analytics, creative, digital media, identity management, all of these kinds of things. I get really excited about like bringing that to our nonprofits. Like, How do we take that and say, oh, here's how we can do this? Because I do think, and we've talked about this a little bit, Justin, I do think more than ever, especially with the COVID, especially with uh, uh, our sort of cultural awakening, especially with financials that are going on, the constituents that we're dealing with are rapidly, rapidly changing, and their expectations are, are being influenced by these commercial incidents, right? Before COVID, you expected to walk through a grocery store and find things over time and look at prices, all that stuff. Now I expect to order my groceries while clicking around. I expect to drive to the parking lot, for them to know when I pulled up, right? And 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 if they're five minutes late, you're like, come on, what's going on? And you lose the context of I just ordered my groceries from my couch. (laughs) I I somebody else packed them up. I'm not saying everyone does that, but I mean, how much more do we do that than we used to? And I think you can see just the rising expectations. And I get excited about saying. Nonprofits to drive their mission to build a relationship they need to build with constituents are going to have to sort of meet and exceed those expectations because we don't get a pass that says oh they're a non-profit but that's okay we're just we're used to it now we have to recognize that even with our nonprofit organizations people have the expectation of being able to make the donation uh sign up for the walk uh learn of about the organization in real time on any device, and have you understand who they are while they're doing it, and that's just really different. And it and it's not just for the millennials or the, you know, Gen X or whatever it is. I mean, now when we're talking about most people who are getting into prime giving age, spent decades working on laptops and have had an iPhone for ten years, and you know, we're not talking about our traditional vision of uh, the donors sort of writing checks. Uh, uh, on their sort of uh, on their desk and and those kinds of things we're talking about donors who are digitally native and how do we meet their expectations. I'm not saying we go all digital. I'm just saying, how do we meet their expectations when they have very different expectations than a donor did even five years ago or three years ago. And, uh, and I think all nonprofit marketers, it's scary as well, right? It's intimidating, but all nonprofit fundraisers, all the folks that have committed our committed to the mission should be excited to say, this is going to be a really interesting time to be in fundraising time to be in marketing over the next couple of years
0: well chris uh we appreciate you taking so much time out of a very busy first week uh to chat with us and uh and for our listeners to get to know you better for us to get to to know you better and um obviously we'll be watching <laughs> like that it's very clear ronnie and i are gonna be paying attention so um uh, but no we appreciate it so uh if you want to track back any of our uh, viewing and listening audience all of our episodes are available on all the different platforms where you can stream podcasts you can watch the videos on youtube and check out all of our resources on rkd group until next time i'm justin Ford for ronnie and for chris pritcher saying we'll see you next time see you down the road. great thank you group thinkers is a production of rkd group for more information visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast special thanks to our production team including the talented ryan mellinger for his work on mixing every episode also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests but the marketing efforts behind group thinkers suzanne ronnie and others for their work on this and every episode of group thinkers